It was all a pipe dream Watching body boarding up on TV Deep at reef watching tension repeats Eating bakery feeds at 18 Living the dream with no sunscreen Yeah we were so keen Surfing Aussie pipe Buying Riptide G'day and welcome to the Riptide Bodyboarding Podcast The home of bodyboarding Thank you for joining us on episode 50 That's right, that's the big 5-0 of our verbal journaling And I'm your host who you hopefully haven't got sick of yet Luke O'Connor Okay, well, for the 50th episode, we thought we'd really treat you. So today's guest was the first ever pro bodyboarder from the East Coast of America. He experienced his first taste of waves as a weed tucker back in the 60s on inflatable rafts. He quickly let the boog fever rush over him as he moved on to his brother's boogs, and by the 1980s, he was in full send mode towards peak booging greatness. As the 80s came and went with all its tight lycra suits and hairspray-enthused hairdos, today's guest was on a competitive rampage, taking out many of the calendar competitions, including the Moray Boogie Nationals in 1984 and 1986, just to mention two. Today's guest also surfed in the first ever world championships at Pipe in 1982 and continued to compete at that event at the highest level of bodyboarding for the next 17 years. I'll just say that again, the next 17 years. Also demonstrating a very fluent and charismatic understanding of the English language, today's guest has commentated for media outlets such as ESPN, Fox Sports, the IBC, whilst bodyboarding raging on through the 90s, and obviously the IBC a little bit later on down the path. Um, over his largely spanning career, our extremely decorated guest has graced the front cover of 15 different magazine editions. He owns and manages an extremely successful bodyboarding store on the West Coast of America with his lovely, lo- loving wife and family called eBodyboarding and also hosts an extremely entertaining podcast show called The Real Deal Show. So if you haven't heard that, Please check it out. I've probably given it away, but I'm going to continue with the accolades until I finish my ramp. One more point to add, this freak of nature enjoys tearing into Ironmans and ultramarathons in his spare time and doesn't mind treating himself to a bit of In-N-Out Burger when he gets the chance, yet still mysteriously holds on to a washboard set of abs as he approaches his 60s. I'm sure you've all guessed it by now. Today's guest for the Riptide 50th podcast is none other than the great and powerful Jay Real. Jay, welcome to the potty, brother. <laughs> well, I think you said it all. It's been great being here, and I'll see you later. <laughs> now, thank you so much, <laughs> Luke, man. That was some Pulitzer Prize winning pros right there, man. I'm really honored to be here, and especially for the 50th episode of your podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Oh, bro, no dramas at all. And just for just for everyone out there um, listening, I, I I didn't do you know weeks on weeks on end of our research. If you just want to go over to Jay's uh, e bodyboarding website, it'll give you the full buy of himself and Vicky, who's also been on the podcast. His uh, his beautiful wife, and it's cro- it's quite the history lesson. And um, if if you know anyone wants to go down memory lane, to head over to e bodyboarding because yeah, man, like when I when I went through it all, Jay, it's you know, it's, 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 it's kind of breathtaking and, and extremely fascinating because bodyboard had been such a young sport, as we all know, um, and it's, it's only really in, still in its infancies. I can't believe 
you've been there pretty much from the get-go, mate. Like what's it been like just coming along the bodyboarding journey for the last 50-odd years? It's, you know, it blows my mind. Just to touch on your point, I was in Maldives, as you know, for the uh, 2023 event, and Mike and I, Mike Stewart and I were out in the water one day just sitting on our boards waiting for waves. This is after the event was done, and we were just looking at each other saying, do you believe we're still doing this and we're in the Maldives right now? And he's 60. I'm I'll, I'm 59. I'll be 60 in February, and we just – couldn't believe it here here we are after all these years still doing basically the same thing in a different context but um yeah it's 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 an honor to be honest with you luke i mean i was there you know i started bodyboarding in 1979 on a bodyboard and the sport was in its infancy infancy you know it was invented in 71 so it was brand new back then, and I rode that whole wave of popularity as it grew uh, through the 80s and just have the best memories in the world of that time. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge honor to have been a part of the sport, and it's what I call the golden era of bodyboarding. Oh, most certainly it was. And you can see just from the sponsorship dollars and the media attention that it got and even just, you know, mentioning the the outlets that you had spoken for with ESPN and Fox Sports being only a couple to mention, that just shows the the interest when um, the sport really did come onto the scene and, and the waves it created. And obviously then we all know the story of surfing and the backlash that happened further on down the line through most probable jealousy, but, um, you know, there's a lot of other factors there, but let, let's bring it all back to the start, Jay, you know, ev- everyone, um, everyone knows the long history that you've had in the sport, but coming back from those first early days, I was very interested to read that you started on inflatable mats. What was it like going from an inflatable mat to your first time on an actual bodyboard? Yeah, it was a, a, a dramatic difference. I mean, back in those days, you know, bodyboards, as I said, were kind of in there. The sport was in its infancy. So not many people where I grew up on the East Coast had them. So it was inflatable mats. We were wearing swim fins, trying to like turn across the wave face and pull into barrels. But we really didn't have any control because I was this tiny little kid on this big, fat, inflatable air mat. And we didn't, you know, we didn't know to, to deflate it to get better control. So these things were inflated to the max and we would just slide sideways down the wave face and the first time I jumped on a bodyboard it was an instant love affair you know I felt a huge difference in control obviously because the board was thinner more refined I could get my edge into the wave face and it opened up a whole new world of wave riding for me in the respect that now I had control over the board and I could get it to do the things I wanted to do. So yeah, that change from air mat to bodyboard was a game changer. Yeah, massively. I could only imagine from the rolled big non-existent rails of a, of an air mat, then all the way to a, a bodyboard. And even looking at the first couple of more as it came out, obviously, you know, huge improvements today, but you can even just see from um, those first initial prototypes how much more uh, logical it is to actually ride a craft like that. But, man, being on the East Coast, Jay, you know, the West Coast is kind of known in America as the place that, um, you know, is the land of waves because you've just got, you know, so many, like such a large expansive coastline that's, you know, fairly uninterrupted with landmass around it and just continually gets swell. Um, 
through, you know, all seasons really. Uh, the East Coast seems to be a different beast altogether and it seems to be a lot more tricky to navigate the conditions and you've really got to know what you're talking about. And you've actually just got to put up with some horrific conditions. Like a lot of those times that you seem to get hurricanes on those beaches and and um, different sorts of, of weather patterns, you've got to be braving it in some freezy conditions. What was it like learning to bodyboard on the East Coast? Yeah, it was it was a night and day difference from what was going on in Hawaii or California. We are so far removed from that whole world. We are in our own world over there. And, um, you know, where I grew up, which was in the middle of the Atlantic coast of the United States, the winter months, the water temperatures down to about two degrees Celsius. And Jesus. There's, yeah, there's snow on the beach. And it's bitter cold. And that's when most of the surf comes because you get these strong low pressure systems that would move off the, the U.S. East Coast. And then they'd ride up the coastline. They call them nor'easters over there. And that was the main swell generator in the fall, winter, and spring months. Um, and then in the summer, if you were lucky, into the autumn, you'd get the what you know what you guys would call cyclone swells. We call them hurricanes over here and that was what you would pray for a hurricane swell so you almost had to be an amateur meteorologist if you grew up riding waves on the east coast because local weather really dictated how the surf was most of the swells are short period swells they pop up and disappear and sometimes in a matter of hours and the other part of the equation is, like you said, you had to brave some seriously harsh conditions, particularly, obviously, in the winter months to deal with getting waves. And back then, and we're talking early 80s to the late 80s when I lived over there, the wetsuits compared to today were horrible. I mean, you would duck dive and water would gush in the zipper. And when you get two degrees Celsius water gushing in the zipper it's it's enough to send you into oblivion you know it's just your head wants to explode and they had the gloves and the booties that were just substandard compared to what there is out there today so yeah i mean it took a level of dedication that i think served me well personally through my bodyboarding career because it uh, you know i I'll, I'll just say it hardened me you know it made me say no matter what the conditions, I'm paddling out. I'm going to practice this maneuver over and over. If it's onshore, if it's snowing, I don't care. I'm out there, you know. So it, it just breeds, especially the mid-Atlantic and the northeast part of the U.S., breeds a more hardcore type of wave rider, in my opinion. Oh, mate, it, it looks so harsh up there. And even coming from, um, say, an alpine snow perspective you know i know the west coast coming out from canada and america is just littered um you know with the rockies and and just so and the sierras and you could just so many mountain ranges you continue to talk about but we're on the the east coast you guys have definitely still mountains but more of a more of a subpar standard i guess to the west coast and then i guess with the waves per se you've you've you're dealing with those conditions that really on the west coast you you never would would have to it's almost like say in the comparison here to australia you know an east coast person say where vicky grew up in port macquarie just you know glorious weather pretty much all year round compared to someone down in tasmania who gets you know like (laughs) 
six or seven <laughs> hours of, of, of light in winter and then has similar conditions where you've just got to be so dedicated and just you've, you've got to grind, you, you know what I mean? And I think that's your point so, so, so true and rings so loud when you say that you had to put in the hours, you had to be determined, you had to just switch off all other real logical senses of your body going, get me out of these conditions and, yes. and push through because you had that love for bodyboarding and you did it also through a prone and, and DK approach. Like I wanted to ask you growing up, the influences would have been um, very minor, I guess, in the, in, in the eighties and into the nineties. Like I, I guess there was that boom, but you would have had to been thinking, um, kind of for yourself and what and and generating the style that how how you saw or how you felt was fluent like my question being after this long-winded rant is what like how did you how did you go about refining your style without say the influences through social media and, and instant um access to that kind of footage today yeah that's an interesting question and and the short answer is you know, back in, in those days, in the very early 80s, there were no videos, there were no magazines, but occasionally you would catch a photo of someone like Jack the Ripper Lindholm or Pat Caldwell or Keith Sasaki in a surfing magazine. They did sort of these little novelty articles about, quote, boogie boarding, and they'd have pictures of these guys. And I would look at these pictures and I would study them in great detail. I would look at where's his arm, where's his elbow, where's his hip, you know what I mean? And I'd see a picture of, say, Jack Lindholm drop kneeing and, you know, where's his knee, where's his foot? And then uh, around 1982, when I went over to Hawaii for the first time uh, for the first ever Maury Pipeline event, um, I got exposed to the best guys in the world at the time. I got to see all those guys ride Pipeline and Sandy Beach and other spots and saw a guy like Keith Sasaki, for example, who was, you know, he was the top of the sport in drop knee at that time, riding totally different than Jack Linham. Jack sort of just sat back on his heel and pulled in the big screaming pits at Pipeline. And Keith Sasaki was like small wave hot dog surfing, like snaps and carves and all of that. I, I was, I've always been a very observant person when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I would just take mental notes. I would watch, you know, any footage I could get of them, whatever I could see, you know, to, to, to refine my own style or make my own style. I took from photos or the odd video clip that, you could get, but there wasn't much out there that at that time. So whatever I learned in those brief um, interactions with those guys, I would take back to the East coast and I would practice them. And my friends who I bodyboarded with back there, we would sort of push each other, you know, we'd learn from each other, but it took ages to learn how to do stuff like months or years that it takes kids weeks or months to do now because they have so many, you know, options in terms of, you know, videos and social media and clips and all that. So, yeah, it was a different ball game back then, man. It took ages to learn how to do stuff. Yeah, and patience and time and um, dedication, which I guess 
in this day and age with, um, you know, you having kids and, and myself having a young one and seeing generations coming up, I think that is unfortunately being lost in certain ways just because of the instant gratification that social media and the internet provides. But um, if I can ask you one thing, Jay, out of out of both Prone and DK, who were your main influences for both? Yeah, I mean, no question. Keith Sasaki was always my main drop knee influence. I ended up moving in with Keith when I moved out here to California, which was like, you know, moving in with your hero. Um, I had pictures of Keith on my wall when I lived on the East Coast. I moved out here and he lived here and I just happened to connect with him and he had an opening in the apartment he lived in. And so I just ate up everything that Keith did in terms of not just his riding, which was state of the art at the time, but also his professionalism, you know, he showed me how to be a pro bodyboarder in terms of how to deal with fans and sponsors and how to keep track of all your publicity so you could submit it for photo incentive and just all that kind of stuff. He was a master at that. So he was a huge influence. And then as far as prone goes, you know, I always will point to Mike Stewart. He was, he kind of came on in 82. No one really knew him, but he he so impressed everyone at that very first pipe event with these giant rollos that nobody else was doing. And then went on to win the second event the following year and for many years to follow. And he, you know, he was basically, he set the bar for prone riding. So all of us wanted to ride like him. I never came close, but it was, you know, it was him that I aspired to and Keith Sasaki on the, on the knee for sure. You know, going to back to Mike, Jay, um, you have a very wholesome and close-knit relationship with Mike that a lot of other people around the world have noted and um, are probably quite envious of because of the just the the status of which Mike holds and, and what he's done for the sport. What's it like being one of his really good friends and, and can you give us an insight into what Mike's like behind closed doors? Yeah, that's a good question. He is... I'll just say I view Mike as a very guarded person. Um, you know, he came from a broken home uh, growing up in Hawaii for the most part. And, um, you know, his mom was busy working, trying to to uh, to make a living to, you know, to support her boys. He has two brothers and kind of left them to their own devices. So, you know, Mike was kind of on his own to sort of, I don't want to say raise himself, but you know, he didn't have the easiest young life. So I think he's a little bit guarded to this day emotionally. You're not going to get a lot of deep, meaningful conversations out of Mike, um, especially in an interview scenario. In fact, you know, it's it's hard to even nail him down for an interview in a lot of cases. Um, but at the same time, he's an insanely brilliant guy when it comes to you know, the world that he's in, which is the ocean and the energy surrounding the ocean and riding waves. He has an insight that, I mean, this, I'm not speaking to anything nobody knows, but he has an insight into the ocean that nobody else has. You know, he's the most barreled bodyboarder that's ever walked the face of the earth and body surfer for that matter. Um, But yeah, he's, he's got a quirky uh, and funny sense of humor um he'll occasionally cut loose and just you know let it all hang out but 
Um, I feel like now in his older age, he's, he's looking more inward and we, we've all seen his Instagram posts where he's, you know, doing these kind of like yoga meditation retreats and stuff like that. So I think he's starting to kind of look inward uh, into himself and, and do a, doing a lot of self um, I don't want to say self healing, but just, uh, you know, self analysis and, kind of seeing where Mike Stewart's going to go here in, in the golden years of Mike Stewart's career. Um, uh, you know, I, like you said, I've known him a long time, 41 years I've known Mike and um, I've always found it's a little tough to get really close to him um, just for the reasons I mentioned. Um, but at the same time, we have a ton of shared experiences and I cherish all those. And I have a ton of respect for that guy. He's, you know, he's been through a lot personally and um, professionally, you know, as well. I mean, he he was at the top of the sport for many years, nine world titles. We all know that. And then, you know, as Guilherme Tam, I guess, sort of took over, you know, Mike took a backseat to that in some respects. And business-wise, he's had some dealings with companies that didn't go well, and he's fought for not only himself, but the sport in a lot of ways, uh, you know, in the industry. So, I mean, he's carried a lot of weight on his shoulders for the sport and for himself over the years. And, uh, you know, I just hope he can enjoy the year. I don't don't want to sound like he's on his deathbed, but, you know, the years he has left, I hope he enjoys them and, and really takes stock of all that he's done and his legacy in the sport and, uh, and, and opens up to, you know, all those, guys from his past and and just kind of lays back and enjoys it you know yeah yeah no i i I can definitely see where you're going with that jay and i can understand the the undertones in in which you're stating in regards to um yeah looking back on a career as mike's had and just making sure that it's uh the the following years after all the achievements are positive ones and not trying to recover or to to reclaim certain things that yeah maybe may have been lost in the um process and and that kind of leads me on to my next question because you are such a a key pivotal um industry figurehead really in the sport of bodyboarding and when it comes to your your store e bodyboarding um and you know just your uh, your involvement with the IBC, your commentary, uh, which is excellent, and and just like your uh, your understanding and knowledge of the sport, you know, what has your dealings been within the industry, and how have you kept yourself afloat, um, making a living off bodyboarding, and and you know, su- supporting a growing family? Like not many people in the industry can say that. And so, my question is, how have you succeeded through the, through the industry, and what have your experiences been? Yeah. So, you know, as a pro bodyboarder, obviously I did that for 12 years. I made a good living at it. Um, despite never having won a major competition, (laughs) I still have a a long and healthy career. And I, you know, I attribute that really to, um, I think my ability to promote my sponsors in a positive light. You know, I've always felt, I always felt during my pro career, like I had a responsibility to, um, to the kids that looked up to me, it sounds really cheesy, but I took that very seriously. You know, I wanted to be a good role model for young kids. And I think my sponsors recognized that and they kept me on for 12 years when that ended. Um, 
I have a teaching degree. I, I went to university. I graduated with a degree to teach high school science, but I didn't want to teach. I wanted to still be involved in bodyboarding. So um, I used all of, and Vicky and I, I should say, used all of our connections in the industry that we had gained through being pros and started this business, e-bodyboarding, um, parlaying those relationships into business. And initially it was super tough, man. People, they didn't want to sell to us. They didn't think it would work because the internet was kind of brand new. This was 1999 when we started and, you know, they, they just said, Oh, nobody's going to buy bodyboards over the internet. And we just, we really believed in it. And we had a few people that believed in it as well. One of whom was a former editor of Riptide, Simon Ramsey, a good friend hey. of mine to this day. Yeah. So, um, you know, he, he supported us and he was working over here at the time for the magazine here. And so, yeah, we, we used those same skills as pro bodyboarders in, in terms of like people skills and relationships that we built. We use that in business and we built the same type of relationships with our business partners and we slowly grew the business. But for me, the crux of why our success has continued is I, as I said, I always took the responsibility to, you know, um, be good with the fans when I was a pro. Now it's with my customers. I try to maintain relationships with the customers. I personally answer all the email queries, you know, about everything from what type of fin should I get to what size board should I ride. I take it really seriously to give them proper advice and make sure they're in the right gear as opposed to trying to make a quick buck. Like I'm not going to try to sell somebody the most expensive board. I want to sell them the right board for their budget and their, you know, height and weight and their riding style and all that. So, you know, putting, um, ethics before profits has always been at the core of our business. And I think it's served us well and continues to. Man, to be perfectly honest, I think that is actually one of the main reasons of your success. Just hearing your story out loud then, like I can only imagine how many businesses have gone by the wayside in bodyboarding and just, you know, in life in general because of not upholding custom experience and, and values that, you know, bring back repeat business. So many people are happy to just go for that quick sale, know they're going to make an extra 200 bucks and then probably never see that person again where you've you've understood that bodyboarding is a tight-knit community and you're going to get repeat customers. You want to look after them because you want to see bodyboarding grow, which is a huge, which is like a huge difference. But thinking about, um, you know, your, your, your store, e-bodyboarding e and um, all the products that you have in there, what are one of the main products that sell, Jay? And, and what's one of your favorite products to recommend in, um, in your range at the moment? Yeah, you know, <laughs> without sounding like a, an advertisement here, Vicky and I started a brand called Tribe uh, a few years ago in, in 2018. And it's basically, originally was just a board line. Now it's swim fins and accessories and everything under the sun. And, and that's really our top selling brand right now um, because we've filled holes in the market or niches, niches in the market that haven't been filled by other companies. And I think the customers that buy these boards appreciate that. We have a, a great budget board. We have great boards for bigger riders. And there's a lot of bigger riders these days. All these guys that I call board agains, um, 
which is, <laughs> you know, riders that are returning to the sport after long absences. There's a ton of them since COVID. And they're, they're coming bigger. back to that religion. Oh, they're just sucking it back time. in, Jack. <clears throat> Suck back in. They're bigger <laughs> and heavier, and they can't ride the same board they rode 25 years or 20 years ago. So we, we fill that niche. And, um, you know, the, the bottom line is Tribe is our number one selling brand. But we also do really well with science and hub boards. And, you know, we sell number six and thrash. We have so many different brands. Um, but it's always always starts out with when customers contact us, what's your budget? You know, where are you riding? All those questions I mentioned a few minutes ago. And, and we go from there. If tribe fits that, you know, that those needs, then great. If it doesn't, I'm, you know, I'm fine with that too. I'll sell any brand that works for them. I, I always tell customers this though. I say, you know, forget about brand, get the board that's, you know, right for those parameters that you set up and worry about um, the design of the board and the construction of the board. Forget what brand is on it. And the brand, the companies hate me saying that I'm sure because brand loyalty is as people spend a lot to get brand loyalty, these companies, but um, you know, my whole thing, obviously, because I sell several different brands and I honestly think they're all great. The quality is great across the board with all these brands, but um, you know, it's, it's up to the customer to make that final decision. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's great to see that you're not being biased any into any one brand and it probably serves you guys really well too. Again, going back to those morals and ethics and just making sure that you're getting the customer experience down pat. And talking about the customer experience and talking about trends within the industry and, and as you said with the born-agains, what are you seeing most in regards to um, design templates that are selling the most? Like are we seeing crescents? Are we seeing bat tails? Are we seeing slot channels, deep integrated channels? Like what are the things that you're starting to see that are, are very popular in um, the, the 2020s? Yeah, so the, <clears throat> you know, the biggest thing in the last five years or four years has been multi-channel boards, obviously. You know, you got the Hub Sci-5, you got the quad vents from um, science we have a quad channel from tribe so a lot of people are looking at the quad channel or the multi-channel boards that's one thing um, the other thing is um, high volume bo- boards i mentioned you know these guys that are much heavier than they were in their youth <coughs> excuse me so you know they're looking for boards that are thicker that are going to float them and the funny thing is, I always tell people this, is, is the boards that are high volume now are still thinner than the boards we rode in the 80s and early 90s. Boards back then were so thick. If you ever look at one of those old vintage Mori Mach 7s, those things are like boats. And even modern high volume boards aren't as thick as that. So those are the two main trends that I see. But, you know, now I'm starting to see people experimenting with different core densities um, and stringers. I've also noticed that, actually. Yeah, core density is a big one. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the thing is, there was a material called extruded polypropylene that was available all the way up until probably about 12 years ago. And then it disappeared. The manufacturers stopped making it for the bodyboarding industry. And that was a really good core. So... Now it's all beaded, all the polypropylene pretty much is beaded out there, and it it's hard to mimic the projection of extruded polypro or even polyethylene 
in a beaded core. So they're tweaking it by changing the density and adding different stiffeners, whether it be mesh or, you know, multiple stringers or different stringer configurations, you know, these, these hex boards that are coming out. So yeah, it's hard to keep up with it all, but the bottom line is I think it's obviously great to see innovation. Um, and some of it's just, I think hype, to be honest, there's been plenty of features on bodyboards that have just been, um, all sort of smoke and mirrors. They don't really help the app. Possibly interchangeable stringers, maybe. Yeah. The ISS came and went good example, Luke, the ISS came and went, um, pretty quickly. And I think the main part is because most riders don't get to travel with their boards. They're stuck at their home break. They don't need to change the stiffness of the board because they're not bouncing back and forth between cold and warm water. So, you know, one stiffness stringer is great, but the, the part of it that really, in my opinion, sunk that technology, and it does still exist on some boards, mind you, but is that they charge so much for the stringers, man. They were, you know, they were getting 70, 80 bucks for a stringer. And those things cost like seven, eight bucks to make. So the yeah, profit margin was huge. Yeah, they were getting, well, you know, what it was is you were going through a couple middlemen. So ISS would license out the technology to whatever board brand. The board brand would pay the license fee, and then they'd have to tack on their fee. So once the retailer gets it and passes that on to the consumer, it's 70 to 80 US dollars for one stringer. That's To me, that's like more than the market could bear. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned, bat and crescent, we've seen a massive reduction in bat tail sales over the last five years. There are still a few people that want them, but the vast majority of board sales, probably 80% are crescent tail for sure. Do you know how funny that is? Because actually in Australia, there's actually been a weird resurgence towards bat tail style. They're not saying that everyone's getting them, but some of our bigger riders over here, like Mitch Rollins, Dave Winchester, just to name a few, have actually gone back to bat tails recently because they're looking, because they're probably not actually surfing and traveling to many of those, you know, larger big wave locations and, and having businesses of their own in Australia and, and families and stuff, you know, taking them out anywhere between one to six foot. And even myself, I've mentioned this on the podcast, I've recently hopped back on a bat tail. And, mate, the differences I have felt in regards to speed, making those those 50-50 barrels that really probably should have been me sitting on the shocky and just kind of getting obliterated up into the top of the wave. Um, and just the way you can whip spins around and release your tail. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely times, and I've said this before at the Island or at Cape or different waves I've been through on my rail and locked in in a normal crescent fashion, like I would for a pit and then felt the tail slightly slide because you aren't getting that, you know, locked in kind of nature that, a that a crescent tail with, um, slot channels does provide but um yeah that's really interesting that's really interesting to hear jay and i honestly talk about bat tails so much recently because i've i felt like i've fucking missed out in the last kind of five years not having one in my quiver and not allowing it to be utilized on the smaller kind of days where you need to generate more speed so yeah it's um 
there's yeah it's uh it's I, I just feel like i was late to the party mate that's what i'm trying to get at i kind of blew it i reckon well you know the market's so different in every area you know with science science is a good example we warehouse for mike stewart science in north america it's all in our warehouse it ships out to his consumers and his retailers from our warehouse so we see what he brings in obviously because we're storing it for him but it's totally different product and it is going to John Crookshank, for example, in Australia, and Norm Skorga in Hawaii. So every market orders what works for their market. And, you know, in the U.S., yeah, it's just been a glut of mainly crescent tail boards. Uh, I've personally, I've always been a 50-50 drop-knee-prone guy, so I've never dove into the world of bat tail. So I can't even speak to their, you know, to their usefulness. Uh, obviously, some of the best guys in the world, Jeff Hubbard comes to mind, rides a bat tail and rides it well. <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, the versatility of the crescent tail always is a good option for most riders. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, and I definitely agree with that. And you're so right when it comes to drop knee, because the way it locks you in and, and you can seem to probably hold and I'm, I'm definitely not a drop knee, but just kind of putting um, logic out on the table, thinking that that crescent would help while you're trying to hold a line and um, through like a, a long funneling barrel and all that kind of stuff. So I can, I completely understand, but um, you know, talking about uh you know boards and and talking about gear jay and talking about your recent experience that you mentioned before over the 2023 visit maldive pro how was it looking at the competitors over there um because is this the first comp that you've commentated on for the ibc this year i know you did um front on in that last year but was this the first one this year First one this year. Yeah, they, I, they wanted me to do some of the South America leg, but I couldn't. We had other stuff, trips going on uh, personally. So, yeah, I couldn't make it. Yeah, perfect. So um, this being the first one, what did you notice um, this year in regards to the pros boards? And was there anything in the gear that you noticed during the post-seed interviews that surprised you or any sort of trends that you um, hadn't seen before? Yeah, you know, I remember I had a, an interview with um, Fabian Thazar. He's a guy from Reunion Island. He did really well, made it to the semis of the drop knee. And I asked him, are you riding the same board in the drop knee that you ride in the prone? And he said, no, this board's a little thicker and a little stiffer. So I thought that was unique. I, You know, for me, I always ride the same board for everything, but – yeah, some of these guys, you know, that did both the prone and drop knee would ride different boards for each. Amory Laverne, he was doing the same board for each. Dave Hubbard, different board. So, yeah, um, you know, these guys, they, they have specialized equipment depending on the waves, as you would expect they would at the upper echelon of the sport. Um, so that was just one thing that struck me about the equipment. And talking about the 23 Maldives Pro, how was it over there, um, Jay? Because, you know, me, me and Sean in our um, comp talk wrap-up uh, made a real point of just how beautiful the place looks. Um, it looks like a tropical oasis, and um, it just seems like a really fun comp to be a part of. It looks like everything's just so well-contained in that comp site, and everyone's buzzing, and it's um, 
you know, obviously not the same heaviness as um, Fronton and Grand Canaria, but almost like a little bubbling cauldron in there that you can you can have a real good viewpoint and um and see what's going on. Like, what was it like being at the 2023 Maldive Pro? Yeah, well, they set the bar really high in 2022. You know, the the waves were really fun and good, and they they really treated the competitors well. The locals were super friendly, so the the field doubled this year as a result everybody saw what went down last year they wanted to be a part of it and i'll be honest with you man they raised the bar again in terms of the infrastructure of the event they had you know for the st- just from a staff perspective better food they had you know everything was bigger and better um waves obviously are completely out of their control uh i think you know, they used the six best days of that contest window because we had, I don't know, 10, what was it, 10, 11 days of the window, and the best days were the days the contest went down for sure. Um, it was a totally different experience from the surf perspective because um, there was a super moon on August 1st. And for those of you that don't know what a super moon is, it's basically when you know, you have extreme differences between high and low tide because the moon is closer to the earth at those times. And so we had an extreme high tide in the mornings and a really big swell for the first, I don't know, four or five days of the window. And waves were washing under the scaffolding, affecting the electrical system. In fact, one day we had to stop the contest because the, it shorted out the electricity because the wires were underwater. It was gnarly, man. And the street in front of the event was underwater. They had guys out there with pumps trying to clear, you know, the the water and chunks of coral off the the street. It was gnarly, man. And there was a massive rip running through the lineup the whole time. Heavy current. It was like a big sloshing bowl in there. And it was basically, it was overloaded with swell. So from a surf perspective, it was a bummer compared to last year, at least at the beginning of the event, as it calmed down and we got further away from that super moon and the tides mellowed out a bit, the waves started improving. I mean, you'll probably notice and say the second to last day was probably the best day of the whole contest, cleaner conditions. We had the low tide, which is always critical for that spot, had the best surf um, and some of the best riding was done at that point. But, yeah, I, I mean, the, the outside of specifically the waves and all that, the locals over there are amazing. And, the, you know, they just open their doors and their surf spot and their arms to all the international competitors. They really suck it in and just show everybody tons and tons of hospitality over there. So, from that perspective, it's a great place to go. Sorry, I keep babbling on here, but um, just one more point about what you said, Luke, and that is it looks like a tropical paradise. So it's really interesting to go to this event because it's on the island of Male, uh, the capital city island, and it's eight square kilometers. It's this tiny island, takes you an hour to walk around the island. It is concrete and buildings everywhere. It's one of the most densely populated cities on the planet. So you feel like you're in, I don't know, Calcutta, India. There's motorbikes zipping back and forth and up and down, and it's gnarly. And you're just like, hold on, 
I thought Maldives was like white sand beaches and palm trees and sipping cocktails. It's not that at all on that particular island. But you can go over to the docks and you can hop on a boat and in a half an hour, north or south, you can be on one of those islands with pristine waves or you can go on a liveaboard boat or stay at one of the resorts. They're very close to Male City. And as you saw on some of the guys' Instagrams, PLC and um, Amory Laverne and so forth, they did do those day boat trips and got epic waves. So it's a great home base to stay on that one island of Male. Hotels are cheap. Restaurants are plentiful. And you can base, you can literally just base yourself there and go north or south on day trips and score absolutely world-class waves so there you go <laughs> yeah no 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 um thank you for the like detailed rundown jay that was actually yeah that was that was amazing I, I don't know if um anyone's ever told you this but maybe you might um look for a job in uh tourism you know for the, for, for the <laughs> pr years. pr your pr man <laughs> oh mate hype up man for sure that that, that yeah. was great and you know that does kind of make sense because when me and Sean were talking about the location, um, obviously you can always pick apart any sort of comp and the wave location could possibly be improved at the Maldives. Still extremely competitive and really great for all the um, all the uh, different types of competitions in regards to like men's, women, um, DK and juniors. But I, I guess you just you just really raised a va- like a valuable point and, and we kind of assumed this the infrastructure's there, the resources are yeah. there. Um, you can make it all happen. Like we've all seen what the WSL has to do if they need to take uh, the comp out to G-Land or something. You know what I mean? Like that comp yeah. only runs every 10 or 20 years because they legitimately can't get the resources and the funding and the 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 uh, the wave window to actually make that happen. So really, when you look at that location at the Maldives, it does tick pretty much all all of the boxes. And much like a place like say Antofagasta, where you know the wave itself is competable, it's mm-hmm. definitely surfable, it's fun, it's not a front on, but because it ticks all those um, those boxes when it comes to yeah, you know, your resources, your marketing, just your your general comp site, if everything that comes in to play, like it um it seems like a very, very successful comp. But talking about PLC and, and talking about um Amore Laverne and, and the competitors and obviously it was really cool seeing them to go off that tropical island and get those reeling left hand time pools that just look like it continued to barrel for days out there. But it, with PLC winning the comp, Jay, like when you were there commentating and watching the thing unfold, did he look like the favourite from the get-go? Because kind of from the footage, look, looking back over it and watching the rounds as they progressed, he just seemed to be building a house and getting it done and knowing what was required to get the scores just to move on through. Like he looked he looked clinical to my eyes. Did, is, is that what it seemed like um, on comp side? At this point in his career, it, it is – almost a formula for him, you know, and he seemed very relaxed going into it. But I personally thought it was going to be Tanner's Tanner's event. You know, he's after three second places in South America, he was highly motivated to take home a win, even though he's got a solid lead on the tour. I thought he really wants a, a first place, you know, he wants a W. So he's going to take, he's going to take it to PLC, but PLC just stayed relaxed, stuck to his formula, the backflip, 
does it for him every time and he's so good at it and he just nailed it man he just you know he came out swinging again and and uh it, it came down you know it, it wasn't a slam dunk i mean he didn't he didn't absolutely destroy him and then it came down to the end of the heat as it as you might expect and uh plc just you know took another win so it was i think his just veteran status as a guy who's been on tour for so many years just gave him that level of comfort to just wait it out and get the right waves yeah i think you are so correct when you talk about um the the age gap there between tanner and plc with tanner just still being so young um, and still not so much to learn, but just experience in regards to competition. You know, it seems like a lot of great competitors really come into their their own between the ages of like 25 to 35 because it seems like that peak physical condition mixes in with, um, you know, a real – a real learned competitive brain, I guess, you know, and, and then um, you can see that's evident in what Pierre's doing right now. He's a 33-year-old that is pretty much at the peak of his powers and, and Tanner can definitely match it when it comes to uh, his ability in the water. Like Tanner is a freakish bodyboarder, but I think it just comes down to those one percenters that Pierre – Pierre can just see at the moment almost like a Terminator scanning the lineup where you've got Tanner maybe not not frazzled but just in 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 my opinion not as um, just not as seasoned and and really like you you would know oh so well that it, you can't replace experience and when experience yeah. comes to the fore it just shines through in volume. Yeah, you nailed it right there, Luke. Yeah, that's a perfect analysis of the situation. And Tanner will have his day. Let's face it. He, like you said, he's very young. He's right there on the verge. And quite honestly, he's on the tee to be the world champ this year. It'd be, it's his title to lose this time around. Um, so though he may not win an event on the tour, and I say that with a couple events still on the on the schedule, um, he will win eventually and it's going to be sooner rather than later no question about it but plc like you said experience counts for so much and a a lot of that is that sort of symbiosis with the ocean and getting that vibe knowing when and where that perfect wave is going to come and kind of feeling it it's something that some of the top wave riders in the world have that you can't teach it just comes with experience yeah, full flow state kind of vibe where you can just see someone who's um, doing, not thinking, compared to thinking and then doing. It's a it's it's a weird thing to to talk about, but yeah, it's it's definitely with Pierre at the moment. But um, moving away from the the IBC and the competitions, Jay, like you, you yourself and your family go on some pretty wild bodyboarding trips. You know, like I've I've noted a fair few trips to um. Texas Waco wave pool. You've been to Kelly Slater's wave pool, obviously going down to um, uh, the equator there. Yeah, you've been to Fiji. But then what what was the the recent camp that you guys did only six months ago? Yeah, we were Uh, in in El Salvador and Costa Rica, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Please give us a rundown on like some of your trips recently and, <laughs> and, and what kind like, you know, cause man, like since COVID you've really hit some destinations, like starting with the camp down in El Salvador, like what's, what's like, what's that like as a location and what's that like to bodyboard? 
Well, yeah, El Salvador, we started going, geez, four, four and a half years ago. We, we took advantage of COVID. We traveled a ton during COVID because it was really cheap. So anywhere we could go, we did it. And we did it on the cheap. It was super cheap to travel. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we'd go to Los Angeles airport and be empty, um, which you never see at that airport. So it was a great time to travel. And we went to El Salvador the first time just before the pandemic in 20, let's see, 2018, maybe it was 2019. I can't remember, but basically Rob Barber from the UK, if you're not familiar with him, he owns bodyboard holidays among other businesses, but that one he's been doing trips for bodyboarders around the world for more than two decades. And how it came about just in a nutshell was I was looking to take Vicky somewhere for our anniversary at that time it was our 20th anniversary and i just wanted a quick trip and i i thought oh rob barber does a trip down there he knows the ins and outs so i signed up for his trip and we went down and and then it became a thing and now he he invites us back every year and he kind of uses vicky and i to help promote the trip as special guests and it's a fun spot there's point breaks there's beach breaks and there's a good healthy bodyboarding population down there that are stoked to get a little group like Rob's down there. And, um, you know, it's in the middle of our winter. So the water here is freezing. It's a great time to get away for us and get it in the water and just a pair of boardies. And the water down there is like 25 degrees Celsius, you know? And so you're, (laughs) you know, we're loving life. So now this year, We've, we, we're going to go for our fifth time to El Salvador, but we're also going to Costa Rica again. So we're basically going to spend most of January and part of February in Central America there between those two countries, you know, just enjoying tropical weather and uh, surfing every day and, and working, you know, remotely while our staff kind of handles things back here. It's great. Mate, well, that's just the um, the result of a very successful and well built up business. You can just go, you know, live abroad, so to speak, and still have things ticking away back at home. That's that's the absolute dream. And so, you've got um, uh, you've got El Salvador coming up again at the start of next year, which is amazing. You've been to Fiji, obviously the Maldives. You went over to um, Gran Canaria last year for the Fronton Pro to decide the world title, which is again such a an amazing time, but um, is there anything else coming up over the next year or so that you're super excited about? Yeah, we're uh, we're starting our travels in about three weeks. We're going to Nicaragua with our old pro bodyboarder friend Brian Press, who's from here in California, and his family. So we're going to spend like eight days there. We've never been to that country, just a surf trip, and then October. I'm talking with IBC about Morocco. Uh, it's not a done deal yet. We're working on it. I may or may not be going to do that event. And then uh, we go back to Texas for our, our Texas tube tour wave pool trip. We we're bringing 20 people this time to that. And then uh, let's see, December, uh, as I mentioned in, sorry, in January, February, we'll be Central America. And then we go back to our Tavi tube tour. That's our Fiji trip. This will be our sixth edition of that one in uh, late February, early March. 
And that's all we have on the docket for now until the following May when we're doing another Texas trip. Oh, I did forget one. We're going back to the surf ranch in December with a group of bodyboarders, and that's going to be freezing cold, but super incredible. (laughs) So we're looking forward to going back to surf ranch for the second time. So, yeah, man, we're just trying to cram it all in, man. I was about to say, how are you even still running a viable business and getting time to breathe there, Jay? Jesus, well, you, mate. You, yeah, it's a, I know. Well, I can't, we can't leave like during a June, July, and August. We're pretty much stuck here, with the exception of me going to Maldives. Vicky wanted to come, but we can't both be gone. It's too busy. Um, but the rest of the year, we kind of like pepper these trips and then come back and work in the office. But we try to time the trips at our times a year when we're not too busy and honestly we couldn't do it without our staff you know josh a a guy who's been with us josh wright's been with us for eight years and he's he's our right hand man and we have a guy named brad in the warehouse and some other part-timers that rotate in and out but yeah we i mean we we rely on them to kind of manage the day-to-day when we're gone, but we can, again, we can only really leave during the times of year when it's not just slammed, which is, you know, the times of year that we go on these trips. So, yeah, but it's taken a while, man. We've been doing this for 25 years. So uh, just, just to build the business up to the point where we can duck out and go away for a little while and come back has taken a long time. We couldn't do it for many years, but just in the last, say, five, six years, we've been able to. Yeah, sick. And now you're um, gathering the the fruits of, of all your hard labor, mate. Like it's 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 all time, you know. And, and again, as I said at the start of the podcast, there's not many people that make a continual living out of bodyboarding and have for its entirety. So it's pretty epic. But going back to the IBC commentary, you know, what will it take uh, money-wise for you to get you over there? Because I'll start a GoFundMe. Like, we need some proper English, man. Like, dude, dude, I'm being serious. I'm not trying to pump up your tires. When me and Sean listened to that comp, it was a breath of fresh air, as we said, because not to talk down of the IBC commentary, they do an excellent job. And I've said this before, man, I don't know how they switch between different languages so well and just do it in such a yeah. seamless fashion. But when you have someone come on like yourself, who has such a handle on the English language, it in it just it just sings through because you've you've obviously yeah, you've had some experience um, you know, in that area. So honestly, yeah. mate, what is it gonna take? Like what, five grand, ten grand? <laughs> twenty. Let's make it twenty. No. Let's make it twenty? Yeah, no. sweet, I can get yeah. twenty going. It's 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 funny, just to touch on what you said, Bago Martino, she's in charge of this what we call the streaming team. That's the group of people that do the webcasting and she is i have nothing but positive things to say about her man she has such a love of the sport and such a desire to make the webcast as good as she can make it and she seriously brought me on because she knows that she wants to have a native english speaker always on the team if she can and that you know right now it's it's basically you know dion myers excuse me, from South Africa and myself are the two native English speakers. She's always trying to add to that and make, make, you know, make it so there's always a native English speaker on the panel, but she obviously has to have a Portuguese and a Spanish and a French 
element there and she's amazing she speaks all those languages i don't know how the hell she does it man she's i honestly don't know how she does it either it's crazy it's it's such a talent and she's so good at what she does but um yeah as far as you know me doing other events a lot of the times it's usually my schedule you know like for example i can't do frontone this year because we're doing our texas wave pool trip during that period um so it's it's never come down to the money because honestly the money is is not amazing. <laughs> I'll just say that. I don't want to say it's it's terrible. It's not terrible, but it's it's not life changing by any stretch of the imagination. It's never been about the money for any of the people involved in IBC. It's always about trying to give a little back to the sport. But for for me and her working together, it's logistics. It's always logistics. It's like the promoters of the event give them a bu- the IBC a budget, and they say, "Here's the budget for, you know, your webcast. Here's the budget for the judges that you're going to bring in, and you guys figure it out." So she basically has a budget. She has to determine who can I bring, how much is it going to cost to bring each person over here, you know, and and then pay them and put them up in a hotel, and that's kind of what it comes down to. It's it's never like Jay, how much money. Is it going to cost you to come? It's always how much budget do I have and how much is Jay's plane ticket from California, you know? So that kind of thing is really the the X factor. I do have an opening in my schedule for Morocco, and IBC knows that. Bago knows that. She's working on it with the promoters. But, yeah, she's under the constraints of whatever the budget is for that event from the promoters of that event, who is a group of people in Morocco that are putting it on. So, that's where we stand. So thank you for the GoFundMe idea. <laughs> Maybe Fago <laughs> would take some GoFundMe money to make sure I can get over there. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm hoping yeah. I can get there. I've always wanted to visit that country. I've never been there. So I think it would be a cool cultural experience. And, you know, the bonus is I might get a few waves before and after the event every day. Yeah, definitely, man. I've I've been lucky to grace Morocco in a van for twelve days, um, driving down from Europe in Africa, and I can tell you now, it's most certainly a cultural experience. It's not full Africa, but it's definitely not uh, a walk in the park either. Um, yes, but some of the waves, Jay, and some of the locations that you can just turn up to and just see, almost like Sahara, and like I know the the, the Western Sahara does join onto the bottom of Morocco there, but it's like Sahara, like it's wow. sorry, it's like the sahara as you're kind of cruising through these just random towns with just continually running right point breaks and wedgie beaches and yeah i'm really excited to see um where the morocco comp um places its event and what wave it it it, uh utilizes because yeah it's just a bit of a bit of an unknown like morocco when it comes to really well documented wave like there are some very heavily trending surf films at the moment you know most not notably probably Torin martin with his um need essential cruise they've mm-hmm. done some pretty cool clips down there but from a bodyboarding aspect there's not a lot of content that you see coming out from down there so it'll be really cool to see what does occur from the comp and it would be amazing to see um plc take it out just from things that we saw in tender and just from his role at the moment. And uh, obviously I'd love to see Tan take it out too, but just his heritage there in Morocco and living there for such a space of time. It's going to be um, really interesting to see how this comp goes down. Yeah, it will be. I mean, like you said, he has roots there and you have Brahim Idouche, who's been a veteran on the tour forever, who's from Morocco. And those two guys, 
they're going to want to rise to the top at that event in particular. So I really hope there's decent waves for it, whether I'm there or not. Um, it's always great to have a new event on the tour. Uh, you know, there the IBC really wants to expand. They just, you know, they they basically are a sanctioning body that provides infrastructure. And a lot of people think IBC. They they'll say, why doesn't the IBC put on an event in Australia? Why they don't put on events? They basically just work with promoters who put on events in different countries and then provide the infrastructure, you know? So they're always open to people who come to them and say, Hey, I want to put on an event here. Can you guys bring the IBC in and sanction it and all that? And they're happy to, to jump on board. Glenn and Danny, the two kind of two of the main guys that, that run that organization. Those guys are passionate, man, about growing the sport. Like, it sounds cheesy and it sounds fake, but I'm telling you, man, these guys are, especially Glenn. I've had conversations with that guy. He is a genuine, he's the genuine article, man. He really wants to grow the sport. So yeah, I love seeing new events like Morocco. Oh, mate, I think it's amazing. And to touch on your point in regards to expanding the sport and hopefully getting here in Australia soon, I definitely think that is a possibility. And I have no doubt that, um, uh, Glenn and Danny um, have the best interest in heart and want to have this happen. I just think, Jay, there might be a little bit of lingering um, distaste in the bodyboard industry with the previous organisation, the APB, um, and then the new uh, establishment of the IBC. There might still be a little bit of water under the bridge there that's not yet fully flown uh, under. So uh, that's all I would say. I think there is going to be some really good things that come out of it, but I think... There's just some teething issues at the moment that will um, hopefully get over through the next couple of years. But um, I, I would love to see one here. We're actually trying to get, especially to be put on the um, tour for next year, possibly not with the IBC or possibly with the IBC. Hopefully, is you know that would be the 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 best. Them being the sanctioning body of a of a of an international competition but we really want to get the shark on challenge back up and running in 2024 and um yeah i listened to your podcast on my run this morning where you talked about that and yeah that'd be great to get that thing going again man oh man it'd be so good like obviously again very small stages now we're talking with um surfing australia in the next week to see what we can do in regards to uh their calendar and and slotting it there and then um and then hopefully taking it to the IBC and maybe having a chat with them but yeah that could be that could be the thing Australian body bodybuilding really needs to kind of give it a a little kick in the bottom because you know I will most certainly fall on my own sword and say that down here in Australia we're we're kind of I'm just gonna say it wait we're kind of stuck up and and ungrateful at times <laughs> because um, we've got so many good waves here. We had so many good bodyboarders um, coming out of Australia for so long, and there's still some of the greats that that live here and do it. And um, I, I think because of the nature of our, our our country and where we're located in the world, we probably if we don't have things surging here, we don't get influenced by the rest of the world because we just don't have the same kind of contact and the same sort of um, engagement with it so i think really we probably as a nation need to kind of do up our shoelaces and 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 pull up our socks and just make sure that we're putting our best foot forward towards um making something like that happen you know what i mean so what i'm trying to get around to say is that 
my comments before in regards to the IBC and getting the competition going here, it's not all one-way traffic in regards to um, one party not coming to the table. And, and I don't think that's the case at all. I'm just trying to say that, you know, we need to have a look at ourselves here in Australia and probably kind of make a bit more of an effort to to get the ball rolling, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was great to see four Australians come to Maldives, right? That was a step in a positive direction. There was a couple guys at Frontone as well. So, you know, it's it's like the Aussies are starting to throw out the branches again and kind of taking a dip into the world tour world and see that there is bodyboarding beyond Australia. Australia was the mecca for the sport for so many years. You know, you had the player brothers and and Rollins and Hardy and, and all that crew just dominating the sport. And all of a sudden the shift has moved to Europe and South America for the most part. You know, some exceptions obviously with Tanner McDaniel and Tristan Roberts. But that's basically the epicenter of the sport now. So I think like you said, some Australians may go, oh, man, uh, they're so far disconnected from uh, from those groups of bodyboarders from those destinations that they've sort of written it off, so to speak. So it was great to see, you know, the four Aussies show up in Maldives. And I think that's maybe a harbinger of things to come. And hopefully that includes bringing Australia back into the fold in terms of world tour competition. You know, I think it's just bound to happen eventually. It's been a while since Kayama, you know, if, I don't know, before the pandemic or whatever it was, but I think it's uh, it's due. It definitely is, man. And speaking of competition sites, Jay, you know, you've traveled to Australia many a time and, and you've married um, one of the great Australian bodyboarders here on the East Coast. What competition site would you like to see on the world tour coming from uh, traveling to Australia? Sorry. Yeah, man, that's a great question. Um, any <laughs> any wedgie hollow wave. Obviously, there is a certain South Coast reef break, which I won't name, but I think most people know <laughs> where it is, that was featured in an event years ago. That looked pretty epic for bodyboarding, you know, to me. Um, obviously, someplace like South Stratty, anywhere where you have wedgie peaks, sand bottom is a bonus because – Let's face it, wedgie barreling waves are where bodyboarders excel and where they can really show what can be done on a bodyboard. You know, uh, I think uh, there's a, a ton of those on the east coast of Australia, a few on the west coast, but um, east coast would be the most likely scenario in terms of infrastructure, I think. So, yeah, I think those places I mentioned um, would be – prime for a potential event you know i really like the idea of south strati just thinking about getting everything over there and much like the reef you mentioned down the coast um Mm -hmm. much the same trying to ferry everything across and i do think those two options are incredible and they have been thrown up in discussions and i definitely wouldn't say no to them but just thinking whilst you were you were speaking and mentioning south strati i know it's been done before but wsl has also held a comp there to, to great success and it's very reliable would you ever consider d-bar as a world tour comp yeah i think that's a fantastic spot it's obviously easy to get infrastructure in down there because you know it's connected to the mainland unlike south strati where you got to boat everything over there um so yeah d is a great spot you just need a window obviously 
you need a long window because you're going to get clean conditions in the morning, mostly onshore in the afternoon. So yeah. it'd be good to have multiple days where you could just run four or five hours of heats in the morning while the wind is good or the tide is good. And then, resume again the following morning so yeah with a long window yes for sure diva is a is a slam dunk i think guys like you know matt lackey and mitch rollins would relish the thought of something right in their backyard you know definitely and i think too trying to cater for all the different divisions um with the females and the juniors and dk for that matter d-bar really does kind of throw something up for everyone so yeah it's food for thought definitely not a locked in location but um yeah, it'll be really cool to see, you know, when that does come to fruition, that the the bodyboarding we get here in Australia. Well, Jay, mate, I've taken up a lot of your time. We've spoken over for an hour um, and we've covered a range of topics, mate. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. I know it's Saturday afternoon there in America. It's Sunday morning here in Oz. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, it's, as we said before, off air, when. <laughs> not really making any um, financial gains out of this podcast. It's all for the love and for the good chat uh, yeah. of the sport. So I do really appreciate your time. And it's it's an honor having you on here for the 50th potty, man, because, yeah, fuck, you've been in the sport for pretty much 50 years. So it's very, <laughs> very fitting. It's been a pleasure, Luke. I'm really stoked that you're doing this and that you guys have resurrected Riptide in a, you know, in a different sort of way and that you're – Anyone that wants to chronicle what's going on in the sport has my total respect. So please keep up the great work. I listen to your podcast on my morning run uh, all the time. So I've heard almost all of them. So keep up the good work. I enjoy the entertainment. Ah, man, that's an ultimate compliment coming from you, Jay. So thank you so much, man. And um, I just wanted to leave us here on this podcast with um, – and I'm going to be trying to do this with uh, the following podcast because I, I find it's a lovely way to sign off and, and give um, further meaning to the conversation. I'd like you to like to leave you guys with a song called Californian Soul by Marlena Shaw. Okay, Jay. Cheers, my brother. Thank you so much. Take care. in your ear but you can't